0: Just remembered, as we were singing that song about evangelism and excitement, that I was given a task on uh, on Monday. I well, I guess I got to go back a little bit. So, uh, as you guys know, last summer we went to the Czech Republic, and while we were there, we met some really cool Christians from Belgium. There's a guy; he's a preacher there, but he's also uh, he works at a mattress company. They make mattresses. His name is Peter. And uh, so their congregation in Belgium, they have church on Sunday, and they have church on Monday, uh, and uh, their Monday night is like 11 o'clock in the morning here, so uh, they get different preachers to preach, and so I'm on their rotation. So I was preaching for them on Monday, and they were telling me afterwards that they just had a conversion in their church, which is very exciting, because it means they went from like eight people to nine people, which is, this is very exciting, but uh, he told me, Uh, in a very Pauline Pauline fashion, to greet the saints here, that he's praying for you guys, and I hope that you will pray for them and their church in Belgium. They are wonderful, wonderful people. So, with that having said, let's begin our sermon this morning. I want you to imagine that you are witnessing a proposal, that the guy, he gets down on one knee, he's proposing to the, the love of his life, and he says, you know, ever since I was little, I always knew I wanted to have children, and you know, if I have to get married to have kids, if I have to bring you, I guess that's just what I want to do. That's a that's a bad that's a bad proposal. If you were thinking about proposing, that's that's it's not a good script. Uh, or similarly, you're uh, you're 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 talking to somebody about uh, you know a couple that just got engaged, and you say, okay, you know, why why did you want to get married? And so one of them says, you know what, I uh, I just just really lonely on my own, and uh, I just figured I, I needed somebody. And you're like, Some, somebody? Like, they, they, you get married to a specific person, and both of these things reveal uh, a, a big problem. And that is that in both of these situations, the person, the people who are getting married, are not getting married because they love the other person, they're getting married because of. An idea of the benefits of something that they're getting out of a relationship, children, or companionship. And I want to ask in parallel to that, why are you a Christian? Or let me maybe ask a little bit different question. If someone was going to, if you were going to talk to somebody about why they should become a Christian, what would you tell them? And I think many of us might start by talking about the vanity of life, that like without. God, there is, there, there's no point, but that God gives us, he gives us answers, and he gives us direction, and he gives us purpose, and those are all true things and wonderful blessings about being a Christian. That's not the point of Christianity. Or you might, uh, you might start with kind of a fire and brimstone. You know, there's a burning judgment in hell, and you do not want to die, so you should become a Christian. It's like, okay, well, yes, but also, not the point of being a Christian. Or you might say, you know what, there's, there's something really amazing waiting for you, and you know, there's going to be an awesome family, and again, all wonderful blessings of being a Christian, but not the point of being a Christian. That if you, in, in similar to our, our marriage analogy, if you're only interested in the benefits of being a Christian and you're not actually interested in Jesus, then you're doing it wrong. And so this morning I want to talk about help if I turn this on, the idea of loving God himself, truly desiring God, and that we're pursuing a relationship with God, with Jesus, that it's not just about the things that we get from Christianity, it's about pursuing God himself. And so to preview this for you a little bit, we're going to start by looking at the ideal that we want to love God and pursue him for himself. And then we're going to talk about what do we do with these desires? What do we do with these blessings? And where do we put them in their proper place? And finally, we're going to look at some practical ways to increase our love for God. So we'll start, like I said, with the ideal that we want to be loving God himself. And we see this in lots of places, especially in the Psalms. So in Psalm 63, he says, Oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Psalm 84, my soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of my Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And finally, Psalm 143, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. That... We have these images of of people in the Psalms yearning for God, seeking him, pursuing him wholeheartedly. And yes, a part of what makes God worth pursuing is the wonderful blessings of being God's child. And the protection and the the peace, it's just, it's amazing. But if we're not interested in God himself, like these people are, then then we've got to, we've got to course correct. We've got to pursue God himself. And I think, we got to ask ourselves here looking at kind of the highs of, of, of yearning for God seeking Him um, in, in these kinds of joyful situations, but we, we, can, uh, we can see this also in some of the, the darker situations of life. I think a way we're able to tell whether we're really pursuing God or just His blessings is to ask, um, would we still love God even when the, those, those blessings aren't there. And similarly, you can ask that about your marriage. Do you still love your spouse even when you know, they're not acting the way they ought to or when they can't do the things that you expected them to be able to do? Is the love still there? Because that's, that's really when you know. And in keeping with that, I want to look at Habakkuk chapter three. In Habakkuk chapter three, we're actually going to come back to this at the end of the sermon, but we're going to look at it now. In Habakkuk 3, in Habakkuk, just to give you some context, uh, he's concerned about justice. And he says, God, you're a God of justice. There's a whole lot of terrible things going on. Are you going to solve this problem? And God says, yes, I am, but uh, not in a way that you're going to like. And there's, uh, so he says, I'm bring, God says, I'm bringing the Babylonians. He's like, the Babylonians, what? And he's very sad, and it's, it doesn't go well. But then in the end, ultimately, Habakkuk comes to a place of peace where he trusts God, And he says in the last three verses of Habakkuk chapter three, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and yields and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And this, uh, very similarly to this verse in Job, uh, where Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In both situations, we have men who have seen the things that they expect from a relationship from God. So, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, talk about if you, if you serve me, then I will bless your fields. But Habakkuk says even if the fields are, if there's nothing in the fields, you're still God. And even when... Uh, the justice and the expectations that we, that we see in our relationship with God, even when we're, we're confused like Job, when he, he tried to be righteous and yet bad things were happening to him he didn't understand, even when, when the answers, when the peace, when the protection, when the prosperity, all these things that we've come to expect from God, when they're not there, God is still God. God is still worthy of us following him and worthy of our worship. And these men show us an example of people who loved God in in all situations, who desired God for himself. And so, as we are taking the message of Jesus to the world, how do we produce people who are truly pursuing God and not just pursuing the benefits of God? And to answer that question, I'd like to turn to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see an interesting sort of preaching pattern, and that is that when Paul and Stephen and uh, Peter are preaching, they don't normally go about it in a way of saying, oh, you know, I I see that you have this this deep uh, lack, let me me fill that for you. It's simply a statement of who Jesus is or who God is and how we should respond to that. In Acts chapter 2, the very first gospel sermon, he gives this awesome sermon. And basically, it's just um, an explanation of what's going on in light of some Old Testament texts. But he says, in verses 32 and 33, he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received... Oh, sorry. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, of that we are all witnesses... Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Verse 36 Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, of course, the whom you crucified is an important part of what Peter is saying, and they hear this and they say, Okay, we need to respond to this. But everything up to this point has been about who is this Jesus. And this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. And that uh, God has seated him at the right hand of God. Peter's sermon is about who Jesus is. And then from that, how do we respond to him? This similarly happens in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we get uh, pretty much the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 10, he says... Again, this is a statement of who is Jesus and how do we respond to him. That Jesus is God. He is the chief cornerstone. You rejected him and he is the only way for you to be saved. This is a statement about who is God. And as we continue on, uh, chapter 7 in Stephen's speech, he gives this awesome speech about Jesus being the fulfillment of uh, the prophet like Moses. And interestingly, he says, you rejected him, uh, just like you rejected Moses, because you were enamored, you were worshiping the, these idols, which were the temple. Uh, the, the temple had become an idol. It's a very interesting, very parallel idea to this, that God gives them a blessing, but they turned it into the focus, into the idol, and they missed God himself. In chapter 8, when we see Philip preaching, In verse 5 and in verse 35, what he preaches is Jesus. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And in verse 35, we see uh, that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Uh, Lastly, we'll get to chapter 9. In chapter 9, Paul is converted. And Paul, when Jesus appears to him, all that Jesus says is in verse 5. Paul says, uh, He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. That's all the information that Paul needed. And from there, he goes out in the rest of chapter 9, in chapter 17, several times in chapter 18, and he's proclaiming, Jesus is the Christ. That's the message. Who is Jesus? Who is God? And from our understanding of the nature of God, we begin to understand that he is worthy of our worship, that he is the only way to be saved, that he is so many things. But ultimately, this all starts with who is God. And so our, our gospel message Uh, is, of course, full of many benefits, full of many blessings of serving God. But at the core of it, it is who is God and how do we respond to him? And so if we know who is God, who is Jesus, then from that, we begin to see how we should respond to him, which is our desire to please him. And that's, of course, uh, relationship terms as well, that when you love your spouse, you make it your aim to please them because you love them. And that's not something that happens in you know, a transactional relationship, that you don't, you don't have that love, you don't have that desire, but in a relationship where you care about the person, when, when God is our focus and not just the blessings that he gives, then we make it our aim to please him. And that's what we see in the epistles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Ephesians 5, walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Colossians 1, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Finally, Second Timothy, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That when we are fulfilling this ideal of loving God himself, then that is going to give us a purpose to please God it's going to give us a design which is to do the things that God has called us to do that we have direction because of that but we don't serve God just because he gives us a purpose just because he gives us a direction we serve him because he is God and from that come forgiveness and salvation and direction and peace and wonderful things from serving God and so as we then go from there let's ask um, How do we put these desires, these blessings, where do they go in this process? Because obviously there is a place for sharing with people the many blessings of serving God. So how do we do that properly? And for that, I want to go back to Acts, this time to Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17, this is uh, Paul's uh, speech at, at Mars Hill. And he's talking about Jesus. All right, he's talking about God who has now been revealed to them. And he says, uh, as in, let's see. Uh, well, he, as, as Paul is preaching to them, he tells them, we'll read his sermon here in Acts 17, verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he's made from one man every nation, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We'll stop there. So this, in verse 27 that God has, has allotted the boundaries of mankind that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's not far from us. Similarly, Paul says in, uh, in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen to us. And uh, we could look in Ecclesiastes where God has put eternity in man's heart, that there are many passages that point to this idea that God has given man a desire, a yearning to seek God. And they didn't know who God was. They didn't know exactly all the ins and outs of it, but they understood at a deep level that there was something out there that they needed to be reaching for. Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel feel their way toward him and find him. And yet as Paul continues in this, he tells them in verse uh, 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's affixed a day on which he will judge the world by a man, uh, sorry, the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That Jesus came, he and now that Jesus is here, these times of ignorance are over, that God has revealed himself, and it is clear that we should pursue God, and in the person of Jesus, we can see him. We no longer have to grow up blindly for him. God has revealed himself. And in this, I, I want to say, we see, I think, the purpose behind all of these desires. And we'll talk about a little bit more of them in a moment. But that God has given us these yearnings, these desires, these uh, a search for the, the blessings and the answers because it brings us toward God. It makes us pursue him. And yet those are not the end of the relationship. Once we find God, it's not just about the answers anymore. It's about pursuing God. Again, I'll, I'll use a marriage analogy. Be, feeling lonely is a great reason to go on a date. Like it's a great reason to, to get out of the house, to, to stop being all on your own and to, like, to go be with somebody. But being lonely is not a good reason to get married. That once you meet somebody, the the focus changes, and it's not about filling a loneliness, it's about pursuing that specific person. And so in the same way, God gives us these desires that can only be filled in Him. And these desires, this yearning for something greater, these yearnings for the big questions of life, why are we here, And, and what's our purpose? are great things that pull us toward God, but once we find him, it has to go beyond that. And so God gives us many, many blessings. Uh, He talks about in the Gospels many times that we have heaven, a reward. And, of course, uh, the the apostles and the the writers of the epistles, they grab onto this as well. In many, many places, we see them hoping for the resurrection, hoping to be with God, which, again, is ultimately kind of a a seeking of God. But this reality that there is something beyond this life, that there is a a heaven, a reward waiting for us, God gives us a reward, and it is not... uh, it's, it's not wrong for us to desire to be rewarded because God gives us this reward as an incentive for serving him. But if that's all we're interested in, if we're just desiring to, to not go to hell, then like we need to, to grow. We need to mature in our Christianity because pursuing God for what God gives us is, is not the end goal. We need to be pursuing God for God himself. Similarly, we can see lots of places in the Old Testament where God says, if you serve me, then you will have peace, you'll have prosperity, you'll have protection, that things are going to go well for you. And I have said this many times in my sermons, that God created us. He knows what's best for us. And if we pursue him, even if we don't get earthly prosperity, that our life is going to go well because we are in line with the creator of the world. And I think that's an excellent reason to be following God. But it is not the only reason or the best reason. The best reason, the main reason, the big reason to follow God is because God is God. And he is worthy of our worship and admiration. And so what do we do with these desires? How do we put them in place? We recognize that they are there to draw us to God. They are there to, to to hold us and to incentivize us, but that they cannot be the only things that we are pursuing. We have to ultimately reach forward toward God himself. And so let me then ask, because I think this is then the, the question, once the river meets the road, um, how, do we, how do we actually do that? And uh, in, in some ways, I have to say that... Uh, I wish I had all the answers. Uh, It's a little bit of an abstract answer. It's kind of like asking, how do you fall in love? It's like, well, I I don't don't really know. But there are some ways, I think, that God gives us to increase our love, to increase our desire for him. And we're going to look at three of them this morning. So turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're going to find two of our answers. I don't know if you can tell this or not. I love the book of Deuteronomy. It's amazing. And especially this this first section is like God loving his people and his people loving God and the relationship as it should be. It's, It's an amazing book. But in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we will start reading in verse 14. God gives us the first reason for pursuing him. And that is that God is unique. There is no one like him. In all the universe. Starting in verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all people as you are this day. "'Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, "'and be no longer stubborn. "'For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, "'the great, the mighty, the awesome God, "'who is not partial and takes no bribe. "'He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow "'and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. "'Love the sojourner, therefore, "'for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. "'You shall fear the Lord your God, "'you shall serve him and hold fast to him, "'and by his name you shall swear.' He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Deuteronomy 10 and 11, this section, is very parallel to what we see in Deuteronomy 6 in the Shema. That here Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or the Lord uh, our God is Lord alone. And similarly, what we see here is that their statement about God or what Moses is saying about God and God is revealing through Moses about himself is that there is no one like God. God is totally unique. He says in verse 14, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Verse 17, the Lord our God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial. He takes no bribes. Verse 21, he is your praise. He is your God. There's no one else like God. And I think we understand this also in, in the context uh, of marriage. I mean, sometimes uh, when Leah and I are, are, are talking, uh, I like to ask myself, okay, you know, why, why did I marry Leah over, over anyone else? Which is not a great question to ask yourself if you don't have answers. Luckily, I have lots of answers to that question. And ultimately, there are, there are a lot of reasons, but, but one of the big ones is that there's, there's no one else like her. That, uh, that I, I have fallen in love with her, and, and, and she is now the, the standard. And there's, there's, there's no one else like her. She's irreplaceable. And the same is true for God on an even greater level. That there is no one else in the whole universe that is like God. He is irreplaceable. He's the one and only. And if we lose him, we've lost everything. And yet he has everything. He is God of gods, Lord of lords, king of kings. There's, there's, there's no one like God. And of course, uniqueness alone is not a statement of, of worthiness. I mean, at one point, there was only one dodo bird in the world, and yet we don't see people worshiping that. But God is unique in a way that is superlative. God is, is unique in a way that makes us want to worship him, and his uniqueness is his worshipability. And so we see that God is the only one. And as we consider the things that make God unique, as we sit down in prayer and and ponder and meditate on the wonderful aspects of God's unique irreplaceability, it's going to draw us closer to him himself. And yes, there are many wonderful blessings of serving God, but as we consider who God is, that's the best part. As we go a little bit longer here in, in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 10 and into, verse, into chapter 11, we'll see them considering their, their history together. So in verse 22 of chapter 10, he says, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today... Since I am not speaking to children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs and deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, that he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the son of Eliab, the son of Reuben. How the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and tents. And every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. Now here specifically, I think he's he's bringing these things up to say, okay, you got to take God seriously, that his judgment is real. But here, along with other places in these early sections of Deuteronomy, Moses brings up their sacred history to show the things that God has done for them. And again, we could look at this from one perspective and say, oh, this is just a list of all the good things that God has done for them. This is about blessings. This is, you know, we've kicked it down a notch. But ultimately, I think, actually, this is a statement about the character of God, that Uh, in line with his irreplaceability, there is no one who has done the things for his people that God has done for his people. And as we begin to see the love, the power, the the care that happens in the relationship between God and his people, then we begin to understand the, the nature of God. And Again, in parallel to our, our relationships in, on, on earth with our, our spouse, we can consider all the things we've gone through, all of the, the experiences that we've shared, all of the, the inside jokes that we have, these things that, that nobody else in the whole world has, but we have this relationship, this history, and it reveals their character, their love, their, um, their care for us and we begin, we get an insight into who they are and it makes us love them more as we reflect on who they are as they have been revealed through the history we share together. And finally, uh, as we consider practical tips for loving God more, we consider his uniqueness, we remember the history that we share together, finally, spend time together, uh, again, uh, taking a, a, a leaf out of relationship pages, but here we see prayer, we get Psalms, we get meditation. And this, of course, goes with considering his uniqueness and remembering our history. We get examples from Psalm 1-1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. That the man in Psalm 1, this wise man, he meditates day and night on the law of the Lord. He's always thinking about God. He's always thinking about who God has revealed himself to be and what God has revealed. He's thinking about God. He's spending time with God. Psalm 92, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. That when we take time in the morning, in the night, when we're together to sing praises to God, to meditate and praise his wonderful works and who God is, we come to love him more. Uh, Finally, we see Mark. This is Jesus. He rose very early in the morning. While it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. We see this continually through the life of Jesus. That he made it a point to go out on his own, to pray to God, to be with God, to spend time in prayer. It's vital. And so as we kind of wrap this all up, we want to love God. We want to pursue God alone as as the, the, the forefront of everything. And yes, there are many wonderful blessings to serving God. And we can share those. We need to be telling other people about them. But we need to make sure that we understand, as followers of God, and the people that we're sharing the good news of Christ with, that ultimately the thing that is wonderful about Christianity is Christ. The thing that is wonderful about following God is not all the things that God can give us, but God himself. And that one day we're going to be in heaven and the reward of heaven is God himself. And so as we seek to pursue God and as we uh, try and overcome, because I think we all stumble at times and we start to look at the blessings instead of at God, we we can take these steps to consider the uniqueness of God, to take time in prayer and in song and to remember our sacred history, the times that we've shared together, the things that God has done for us and the character of God as he's revealed in those things and we can draw nearer to God himself. That is our goal. So at the end of time, And every day in between, we can say what Habakkuk chapter 3 says, that though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. We'll pray briefly, and then the message will be yours. Let's pray. Our God, you are so good. You are God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings. You have brought us out and liberated us in ways that no one else ever could, and that reveal your care and love for us that is beyond anything that we could really even comprehend. And so we ask today that you would put in our hearts a desire for you alone, and that we would delight in the blessings of a relationship with you, but that we would never lose sight of the fact that you are our aim, you are the goal, you are our one desire. And so help us to pursue you wholeheartedly, so that even when life makes no sense, even when things seem to go awry, that we would still trust you because you are still God of gods and Lord of lords. We thank you for loving us, and we ask that you would stir in our hearts a love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.